Welcome to the Future Financial Planners podcast, brought to you by the Financial Planning Association of Australia. Whether you're a student, a graduate, or an early career advisor, join us as we dive into the ins and outs of becoming a financial planner. I'm your host, Azaria Bell, bringing you tips from the experts on career strategy, sanity, and success. Today's episode is the first of two deep dives into the professional year that we'll be doing on this podcast. I'll be joined by Jemima McMurray, Student Engagement Manager at the FPA, to get a solid breakdown of what's involved in completing a professional year. We discuss who needs to do a professional year, when you should start your professional year, what's involved in each of the quarters, how to put together a plan, and the resources you'll need to make it happen. Hey Jemima, thank you so much for joining us on the show this week to talk about the professional year. Not a problem, great to be here Azaria. So we're going to be splitting this uh, professional year into two different episodes because as you know it's such a big topic, Um, but in this episode we're going to be talking specifically about the basic overview of the professional year and what's involved and next week we'll be talking to someone who's actually going through the professional year and what's involved on a day-to-day basis but I'm sure many people listening Jemima are familiar with you but for those who possibly aren't um, what do you do at the FPA? So I'm infamous for creating educational things around how students can get into financial planning. My role is the student engagement manager here at the FPA so What that looks like is liaising with a number of universities all around Australia, student associations, individual students, potential financial planners, so those who are just hearing about it for the first time, and also when those who decide um, that they are interested in doing it come on board, providing them with the educational pieces that they need, understanding the requirements, and getting media and communications out there about the pathway into financial planning, which is a great career path if you're listening. Absolutely. And for many people that are listening to the podcast, they might have heard of the professional year, but aren't sure exactly what's involved. So that's what we're going to get into. But to start off, could you give us a bit of an overview of what the professional year is and why it was made in the first place? For sure. So if I take you back to 2018, the pathway to becoming a financial planner was less straightforward. It was less Well, actually, it was more straightforward. It was less regulated. So there were a number of people out there practicing with their various professional backgrounds. And to get into it, you would usually do a degree in something related. So commerce, business, finance, you would do some practice within a firm, you would get the hang of it as a power planner and then move into becoming a financial planner in a bit of an experience pathway. But in 2019, the government brought out a new requirement and that was it was a three-part requirement. So the first part of it was that anyone moving in to become a financial planner had to start with an approved degree. So mm. it had to be from a very specific list from a university that was regulated with a national curriculum. That was number one. Number two was that they had to complete a professional year. So once they were nearing the end of this approved degree, they had to do one year of supervision within a practice, within a licensee. And Midway through that year, number three, the third requirement was that they had to also complete an exam to prove their ethical foundations were intact and then they could progress to finish the professional year and enter as a financial planner. So we've gone from general experience pathway to very specific three-stage entry into financial planning and that's been enforced now for just coming up over two years. 
Yeah, I kind of entered the industry um, just before all this was taking place. And that means that I've personally been going through the professional year. And I see it as kind of like a graduate year for financial planning. Would you would you agree? I think the graduate year is helpful to understand where it comes. So it is after you're studying typically. And it's definitely that foundational framework of getting on the ground, getting on your feet in a practice. So yeah, I think graduate year is a helpful way to think about it. So what are the requirements that come into the professional year? What are the things that you have to do throughout that process? So for someone coming into the professional year, it's helpful to understand the the intention behind it. So there's a few key competencies that the government wants you to learn. So as an overview, these are technical competence. So they want to know that you've got the technical proficiency that your advice strategies are going to be appropriate for that client, acting in their best interests, understanding the different financial situations and the different types of clients as well. So you could have retail clients um, with different needs. So technical competence. There's also client care and practice. So you need to be able to advise new clients uh, with fact finds and things like that and also service existing clients. So understanding that base. There's also, of course, the regulatory stuff, um, compliance in terms of consumer protections and then ethics, which is was the big focus behind the professional year to start with. So those competencies are all packaged up into a four quarter structure. They've made it pretty easy for us. They've split the year into four distinct quarters. And you will find that the government has put out specific lists of what each quarter looks like. So for anyone interested in the in-depth list of what that would look like in terms of a one, two, three, four, have a look on the website. It's currently on the FASIA website, uh, which is still existing as we record this podcast. So that's still the best source of knowledge there. And they've got the breakdown. So did you want to hear about the different quarters? Yes, please. Please. All right. So I'm interested to hear your experience as well, because you've gone through and and which stage you're up to at this point as we record. So I'm in the second quarter now. I started my professional year with another practice and then moved. So that created a little bit of a delay. And we'll talk about that a bit later in this episode as well. Um, But yeah, currently in the second stage. Stage number two. Fantastic. Well, quarter one, for those who haven't started in that Uh, part yet is all about well quarter one and two primarily is about observation so they're not going to throw you in the deep end advising clients on your own in the first two it's more about that supervised accompanying of a financial planner so you might sit in with them on a client meeting a fact find Uh, you might sit with someone to produce a statement of advice or have someone thoroughly checking anything that you might be producing and Mm -hmm. Quarter two is similar. So quarter one and two, definitely supervision. It's more of a close working relationship with someone who's your supervisor. And it is definitely not being out there on your own. So that's the administrative side of things. I think if someone here was listening and they're already working in client service officer positions or some early administrative entry level role, those would be the kinds of tasks you would be still doing in quarters one and two calling clients, updating details, booking in uh, meetings perhaps, still that administrative base. So once you've finished quarter two, you can then enroll for your exam, your advisor examination. So you need to finish quarter two before you can apply for that, to sit that. And after you've sat that, it's only at that stage that, that you then get to have indirect supervision. So it's a bit like a burger, I would like to say. I know you're a vegan, Azaria, so this is a veggie burger. 
a veggie burger, yeah. Quarter one and two, first slice, <laughs> direct supervision. You've got your veggie patty, which is the exam. And then after that, you can then update your uh, job title as a provisional advisor. In fact, you're only allowed to use that after you've passed that exam. And then in quarters three and four, the last part of the burger is more indirect supervision. So you might be able to do a fact find with a client by yourself or and then report and review that with someone who's your supervisor rather than just partnering with them. So I can imagine that would be the part where you feel like you're stepping out a little bit more on your own, but still with that direct line of feedback where someone's checking and is taking accountability as well for the advice that you're providing. And just to clarify, in that third and fourth quarter where you might be having unsupervised meetings with clients, is the advice under your name as their advisor or are you still assisting your supervisor's clients at that stage? Interesting. I don't think, and you've probably got more experience on the practice side of this, Azaria, than I would from sort of the technical and education side of it. But it's my understanding that as long as you're still in your professional year, everything that you do is signed off by someone above you and is mm. under their legal uh, their legal licensee arrangement. So someone would be taking responsibility for anything you say. Uh, and I'm not sure at this point if you would get your own clients. It doesn't really make sense that you would considering that mm. someone still has to sign off for you. But you might increasingly service the same clients and provide them value. Uh, but everything you do has to be, the clients have to be notified that you're in training. They need to know yeah. that someone else is responsible for that advice if they had any issues with it, or just so they can take that into account when they're assessing what direction to take based on your statement of advice or record of advice. Yeah, absolutely. And one thing I noticed when I was planning for the professional year, because I personally think it's really important to have a plan with dates lined out. One of the reasons I think that is important is because there's a limited number of exam sittings per year. So you want to make sure that you're not finishing your second quarter of the professional year and you can't complete the exam for another two months. So I found that it was really useful to line that up. So for anyone who's listening, who's maybe going to go and look into putting together a plan, how many sittings are there for the exam each year? It's been in a state of change at the moment. So I'm not sure of the ongoing schedule of the exams, but it would be helpful at the start of your professional year to go and check that register of when the sittings are. I do know that in response to different things like COVID and uh, finishing dates for requirements, they've been adding in more exams, but it would definitely be worth checking. In terms of that timeline, and I'm really glad you mentioned the plan, that's if you were, you know, today you're finishing your degree and tomorrow you want to start your professional year, the first thing you have to arrange with a practice or a potential supervisor is this plan. It's actually part of the legislated requirement to start a professional year. So square one is your plan. In that point, you would look at the different types of activities that the advisor would like you to do within quarters one through four, and also would be the best time to figure out that timeline. Like I'm expecting to spend six months here for the first two quarters, and then there's an exam, great, in seven months, perfect timing. Then I can continue, hopefully, with a pass result to finish this out. One thing I do get asked a bit is, does the professional year only go for one year? And I would mm -hmm. say no. The experience that I've heard from various people sitting this, and to date there's about 400 people by the end of financial year 2021 who have started as new entrants in this professional year. 
their experience has been that it's not necessarily 12 months. So the way that FASIA counts it currently is it's a it's an hours-based process. So it's mm-hmm. 1,500 hours plus 100 hours of structured training. So that's 1,500 within practice, which roughly works out if you were doing full-time to be one year full-time work. But of course, if you extend that out and if you're doing it part-time or you're balancing that with studies, that hours requirement could be spread out longer, as well as the waiting periods you'd have between registering for an exam, for example, then you have to wait a month, adds on, you've got to wait for your result for your exam before you can start quarter three, before you can start logging those hours again. So I think it's helpful to think of it, yeah, graduate program might not be a year. So take that 12-month cap off. It's definitely just going to be as long as it takes for you to become proficient and for all of those stages to be signed off. Yeah, absolutely. And I think of the professional year as minimum of 12 months. You can get all of your requirements done in that time, but it doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to be ready or confident enough yet to be sitting in front of your own clients. It's it's a journey, not a race to the finish line. Exactly. And at the end of the day, they want to know that you're capable of providing good advice to clients. And you probably in your heart of hearts as well want to make sure you're not stuffing anyone around through inexperience. It is mm. a process of becoming competent and making sure that you're being supervised correctly. But until you can display those competencies, it's in your best favor to stay in that stage until you can work up um, to prove and to demonstrate that you can um, progress to the next stage. It's gonna help you, it's gonna help your clients. So if you take it from an education-based perspective, this is about your learning, it's about your development. It's not, as you said, about the race to get that accreditation at the end. So look, there's a long career ahead of you if you're a successful advisor. If you start at six months later with better knowledge, so be it. That's exactly it. That's exactly it. And you mentioned before that you can't have the title provisional advisor until you've entered quarters three and four. So does that mean that I can't start calling myself an associate advisor in my first quarter? If you're in the first quarter of your professional year, quarters one and two, you can only be known officially as a new entrant. So that's your... If you want to think, who am I? You have a little existential financial planning crisis. Who am I right now? (laughs) You're a new entrant until you've finished that exam. And then at that point, you can be called a provisional advisor or a provisional financial planner. It's actually illegal to use that term until you've earned it um, and gotten to Mm -hmm. that stage. So there's just something to be mindful of. In terms of being an associate advisor in a practice, I think that term doesn't have the same legality around it, but you certainly couldn't be called a provisional advisor. That's a specific term for someone who's in that stage of their professional year. Yeah, I think it's probably a good rule of thumb just to avoid having the title advisor or planner in your job title at all until you've passed that exam. Absolutely. I would agree. So for me, my job title at the moment is advice associate because I'm assisting my um, supervisor with implementing advice and I've heard of other people just using their title as a client services officer or a power planner until they get to that third quarter. And there is a lot of overlap. If you're a power planner, you're probably already doing similar things to quarters one and two. It's just whether that's formalized in a plan. That's it. And we talked a bit about the hours that it takes to complete a professional year. So if I were to take a career break midway through my professional year, let's say I'm going traveling for six months in a post-COVID world. (laughs) Bring me to that world. (laughs) Fingers crossed. Yeah. (laughs) Fingers crossed. How would that affect my professional year? 
That's a good question. And I hope the world does open up and people have that option in the near future. <laughs> if you were to say finish quarter two, you wanted to take a break before progressing to your exam in quarter three, you could certainly, well, at each stage of the quarters, you are required to have your supervisor sign you off. So a certificate is issued at the end of quarter one in order for you to progress to the next and the same as quarter two. So if you're sitting there at the end of your first two quarters, you will have two signed certificates from your supervisor. Uh, I can imagine that would transition quite easily if you were to take a break and return to the same practice. Yes, Jenny, my supervisor has signed me off and I'm now up to quarter three and I've got this documented. So you will have a logbook displaying your work up to whichever stage you may take a break. And I did have one person reach out. She was taking a maternity break as part of this professional year. And she, her practice was fine with her coming back after that and just demonstrating the logbooks that she had, had completed, which is a requirement. So you should have that documentation anyway. Yeah, perfect. And is it similar if you were to change workplaces? So say if I'd started my professional year, I'm three months in and I got a new opportunity elsewhere, will I have to start that professional year all over again? I almost want to defer to you on this one, Azaria. How did, <laughs> how did that work? You've had a lived experience of this. I did. The thing with me was that I was only in this maybe the first couple of weeks, we just got approved for me to start my professional year with my old licensee. And it was at that stage that I moved. So for me, there wasn't really much to transfer. The logbook was only a couple of weeks old. So we just went through and I started from fresh at my uh, new licensee. So that wasn't a problem. But I, I can imagine that transferring, as long as you've got that logbook and you've got that history, shouldn't be too much of an issue if you were to change workplaces. Because you'd hate for someone to stay at a workplace just because they they feel like they don't want to lose their professional year progress. Look, I don't think they will lose their progress, but it will be up to the discretion of the new licensee. If you went from licensee A to licensee B, licensee B would have to legally sign off on your experience, whether that was logged at A, they weren't directly supervising that. So it depends on their confidence in you and they may ask you to demonstrate those competencies that you've logged. If they can see that happening, they will still have to sign you off for, say, quarter three. And so there's five certificates you'll get by the end of your professional year. The fifth and final one is an overall sign-off of all of those quarters. So that signatory has to agree and put their name legally to your competency across all of those quarters. If you've done quarters one and two at a different licensee, they will need to vouch for that. So I could imagine if you've demonstrated that, they will have the confidence to sign you off. But in the future, if they have a really specific training program, it may be that you're required to do their program. So I can't say for certain, I would say your chances are quite high that it will be recognized under your future supervisor. Okay. That's good to know. And for someone listening who's maybe studying at university and they've done a three-month three internship in a financial planning firm, would that experience count towards a professional year? Oh, this is a good one because retrospective counting of experience is a bit mm. of a blurred uh, space here. The official word from FASIA on internships counting is that if the workplace activity, so if you have agreed before your internship that this is going to be engaged as part of your professional year, it can count. If you do your internship and then ask to apply it retrospectively, there's no guarantee that that will count. So the order of operations is always that there's a professional year agreement in place, 
before work is undertaken that's logged in the understanding that it is part of the professional year. And then you could say if that internship progressed to a job position, continue it there. I don't know about retrospective logging, although we can mm-hmm. talk about, if you like, how to fast track if you have got all of that experience because there's been some scenarios like that too. Yeah, I imagine there's a lot of people who've maybe been working in the financial planning industry for a couple of years and are now finishing their degrees and they're thinking, have I just wasted that time? That could have been counted towards the professional year. How do you approach that? So two things that I'm aware of. One is that no matter how much experience you've got, you still have to do 1,500 hours. Mm -hmm. It will just change where you do them. So let's say you've been a paraplanner for three years. You're exceptionally competent and you can display all the competencies required in quarters one and two. You're an administrative ace. You've done statements of advice. You're trusted in your practice. What you'll be able to do is if that supervisor knows and can give a good reason for why you should have that. So there is documentation required on their end. They can't sign you off without a good reason as a friendly favor. It will have to be demonstrated. But if they can see you're competent in those first two quarters, they may sign off your two certificates saying they've demonstrated these, go straight into your exam, and you could spend the next, you know, well, the majority of your hours in quarters three and four. So it won't accelerate the timeline, but it will, it can change where you're focusing that time. So you could spend six months then in quarter three with indirectly supervised client advice, quarter four in your more independent but supervised uh, client work. So we do get that a lot where people have come in from practices where they're already quite competent or they're making a career change from even a senior power planner to a financial planner. They're already going to have a lot of those in the footwork done especially on the administrative side. So there's, if you're out there with heaps of experience, be encouraged that there is, they're not going to baby you through back through steps that you've already done, but your supervisor will have to see that you are competent in order to progress you further and quicker. Yeah, I had experience with that. So when I started my professional year at my current workplace, I'd already been in the industry for three years doing associate advisor work. And part of me was thinking, why do I have to do all this again? I've already done this. Um, But I went into it with an open mind and I actually found that it was really beneficial because starting at a new firm, um, it was actually really useful for me to go through the basic things like lodging and insurance application, entering details from a fact find because it really just familiarizes yourself with every step of the process. So for me, I saw it as each quarter, I'm going to be making sure I've completely perfected every part of that role so that by the time I become an advisor, I know how to do everything. I'm going to be the most qualified person in this business. Um, So I think it's a case of not looking at it as a missed opportunity that it wasn't recorded as a professional year earlier, but looking at it as an opportunity to revise your knowledge and make sure you've got that structure going through. And I also think it's a really great thing for me to look back on in the future is have a look back at the logbook and the reflections I was doing and see how far I've come once I am a qualified advisor. So how heavy, Azaria, having been through that, how heavy is the recording element as a factor of the professional year? And what's that logging like? I think everyone must approach it differently. And I'm really interested to see next week how the people that we speak to manage that. Um, But for me at my work, we have a bit of a unique process because we all work from home. We have a daily record of what we've done during the day. So before I even started the professional year, we were already recording what we were doing each day. So for me, I make it a weekly thing where at the end of each week, I'll put all of that information into my professional 
professional year spreadsheet. Um, so that's a really easy way to manage it. But I have heard of people just at the end of each day, they keep a tab open with their professional year logbook and they'll just add in what they've done during the day. So there's obviously different ways to manage it um, and everyone would do it differently. Great. So I can imagine it's also negotiated somewhat between the advisor and yourself or the supervisor and yourself in terms of what you're going to tick off next week. Okay, I need some more time demonstrating this one. I need to do some more mm-hmm. fat finds or, or something. And then to guide, let that checklist and that plan guide you as well. Yeah, that's exactly it. And when I first started, there was a bit of confusion because I think at the time that I started, there wasn't any uh, mandated logbook f- available. So for anyone now who's looking for those resources, well, first of all, what are the resources that they're going to need to complete the professional year and where can they find them? So the resources that you will need to do your professional year are one, a plan. So if you want a template of the plan, the best starting point for that is the legislative instrument that is online. We'll put it in the show notes if you can, Azaria. It's the. Yep. It's going to look very legalese, but it's got a brilliant list of all of the competencies listed out in a very task-based structure for you. So you can use that, copy it across, make your own. That will be a great guiding template for the plan, which of course is is done in tangent with your supervisor. So that's going to be a co-built document that you will agree to before beginning. On your end too, once you're going through the professional year and it is established and you're working through it, you will need a logbook. So that looks often less like a paper and pen and more like an Excel spreadsheet. If you can do something fancier, go for it, color code it, do what you need to. FASIA has some of these templates for each quarter on its website. And the FPA, the Financial Planning Association, has also created a more dynamic database as well. So they've developed a system where the supervisor and the new entrant has a login and they can view each other's comments and attach evidence, for example, of different stages that you're up to. They've got pre-built certificates. So that's really going to help your supervisor. If your supervisor, if you want to give them an easier day, recommend this resource to them. It's also something where you can log in and you know it's secure and hopefully something that you can take across to another practice as well. So you can download different logs as well. So a bit of a plug for the FPA's documents, um, but for SIA doesn't, mandate that you have to use their logbooks. They do have basic Mm -hmm. templates. There's also certificate templates, but that rests more on the shoulders of the licensee. So we've talked about the education requirements and the learning requirements of the professional year. It seems like it's a lot and you'd think, I can't wait for this to be over so I can just kick back and relax and do my advising. Are there ongoing education requirements after you've completed the professional year? If you're going to be professional, you are always going to be professionally developing (laughs) and the government would like to make sure you're obviously doing this. So yes, if you've done any sort of professional training in many, many industries, there's going to be a continued professional development number of hours you have to complete per year. So after you've become a financial planner, that doesn't go anywhere. Ongoing training is necessary. I believe the minimum requirement is another 40 hours per year. But look, that's going to look like nothing compared to the 1,600 total hours you've just done. So that would probably look like webinars, conferences, networking, hopefully some breakfasts and lunches in there too. So nothing to worry about, but it's good to keep in mind 
that you will need to continue with that learning your whole career long. Absolutely. Things change so often in the financial world. You, you wouldn't want to be um, behind on any of that. Excellent. Well, I think that was all of the questions I had for you today, Jemima. Thank you so much for answering all of these questions. It's an absolute pleasure. So I hope to see the numbers climb. We want to see professional year, new entrants and provisional advisors fly through and really become the professionals that they aspire to be. And this is a way to get there. So I am grateful to see the profession going this direction and to approach it with that educational mindset and with that, you know, I'm developing here. You know, this is for me. This is for my own development and for my clients. That's the approach that's really going to make this a positive time for you. It's not a burden. It is an investment in you. I totally, totally agree. Um, So next week on the podcast, we're going to be talking to someone who's currently going through the professional year as well as talking to their supervisor and asking them questions about how they actually manage it on a day-to-day basis. So things we've touched on today like logbook management um, and chatting with your licensees and how all that stuff works. So make sure you tune back in then and we'll see you then. Sounds like a great discussion. I'll be tuning in myself. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Future Financial Planners podcast, brought to you by the Financial Planning Association of Australia. For great resources and a free student membership, find us at fba.com.au. Good advice makes for great futures.